0: So thank you for being here. This will be our last presentation. So let me just uh, make a comment on, uh, on what we have just done because we have had a wonderful meal. And I have been uh, involved in the Seventh-day Adventist community for many years. And I have witnessed discussions about whether perfection is achievable. Can you be Perfect. And the answer to that is yes, because I've seen it and I have experienced it again today. <coughs> Adventist potlucks <laughs> are perfect. <coughs> there is perfection in this world. And, and, and <coughs> this was the proof again. We had it proved again today. Thank you very much for the food, and it was absolutely wonderful. <coughs> four glimpses inside Revelation's open door, we are still looking over the shoulder of John as he is looking at what transpires in the heavenly council, because they are the first to see and the first to be persuaded by what they see. In some ways, their body language models the reception. They are Uh, When they talk, when they talk back, when they respond to what is revealed to them, it is a kind of invitation for those outside the book, outside the room, to maybe respond likewise. (coughs) So we are still there, and (coughs) the title of this presentation is Revelation and the Name No One Knows. That is toward the end of Revelation. Before we start reading the text from Revelation 19, I would like to uh, invite you to weigh in on a question I have. So, I have done some series of presentations on this topic. Uh, I have done it in the context of church community at Loma Linda, students as well. And I have about 30 presentations on YouTube on this subject under under the title with my name, and re-reading Revelation. Re-reading Revelation. I am planning to redo the last six, but the 24 that are up there now, I will... uh, All all 30 are there, but I want to redo uh, the last six. I want to redo these. So as you reach, sort of get homeward bound in Revelation there are some images that I call images of healing. And those images, there are six of them toward the end. There is the name in 19. There are the tears in 21. The city also in 21. And the nations. And then there is something about time. So at least those with the... The name Tear City Nations, those are images of healing and maybe time to some extent too. So I want to organize these in two different ways and I want to ask you which way you think it should be organized. So here is one way. Here are those images of healing at the end of Revelation with a name in the middle. They are organized. They are Secondary, the primary image that sort of t- sets the tone for the others is the name. And <coughs> then you have the time and the tears on earth and city and nations around it. So I try to, to so should it be like that? That's what, what I'm asking. And then I changed it. And now you see I put time at the center. See, I moved the name out here. So now we have the name, the Tears Earth, City, and Nations, and time at the center. You think it should be organized like that? That's my... Wait, wait. <coughs> I want to do it with pictures, too. <coughs> so here we have the name at the center. I don't have a picture for that. I don't think w- I couldn't want to try that, maybe. Here is time, the tears, the earth, the city, and the nations. The city is the city of St. Andrews. (coughs) Because when I was there, and it was an intense experience for me to study there, and when I went running, jogging, which I did and do, (coughs) I would pass over the old course, the golf course there in St. Andrews, and on my way back to St. Andrews, it always looked like the New Jerusalem to me, you know <coughs> i th- I think of that. it was very beautiful, so here is the same thing with pictures, the name in the center. now I'm changing it. Should it be like this, or should it be like that? and now we have time at the center, and so the name as one of the elements at the periphery, but time is at the center. Which one of these do you? want? You want the name at the center? You don't want time at the center? Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> because at this point in the reading communities of Revelation, you will be in a minority. Because the, the, all the major schools of interpretation of the book of Revelation have time as the organizing element. You use to ask the preterists who think that the revelation is concerned about uh, matters in the first century uh, in our, you know, CE or uh, AD. That's a time-centered or uh, interpretation. Time is the is what defines it. If you ask the futurists, they also think that that time it should be at the center. They think it, that the concerns of revelation is our time. Any time, you know, when we are in our time, maybe. Yeah. So, but you want want the name at the center or you want time? (laughs) So, let me just say again. So, if you ask the historicists, and Seventh-day Adventists tend to see themselves in the historicist community, And I do not want to disparage some of the claims that people who do historicist readings, as I am indebted to myself, but that is also a time-centered reading. Historicists have in common with futurists and preterists that they make time and events in time the main, the overriding concern of the book of Revelation. If you put the name at the center, you digress because then you have adopted some other issue or concern to be the main concern other than time. You see me? See what I'm suggesting? And if you think that should be done, do it. (laughs) <laughs> <That's, clears throat> let's see what we, how this goes. Let's <clears throat> read now some of the verses in Revelation 19 about the name, where the name is highlighted the most, perhaps. And I saw the heaven opened, and look, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and Trustworthy. And by upright means, and by upright means he makes decisions and wages war. He is so. This is a figure in the cosmic conflict who is one of the worrying partners, and his way of fighting this war is characterized by upright means. He makes decisions and wages war. So, and you see that the heaven is open again, and the notion of an open heaven is, is then uh, valid throughout this whole this book. So here we have uh, in the Cambrai Apocalypse, we have the a composite image of what John is seeing here: the rider on the white horse with the sword, and the follow those who follow him on white horses, and then the treading of the winepress here, that is also part of the passage we are going to read. (coughs) So, white horse. What about the white horse, or the white horses of Revelation? Because, as you know, and now we have, that is far behind us in our reading, but we have other white horses in Revelation now when a concept in greek is introduced without the article without the definite article it is usually a novelty so if something is has been mentioned and then is mentioned again it usually is mentioned with the definite article and the article in greek is a very uh, is a very major feature of greek writing greek uh, um, uh, style, style or, or, or the texture of the language. So <laughs> anyway, here we have the rider on the white horse, and we have a characteristic of him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. And he is introduced without the definite article. So it isn't the white horse. It is a white horse. And don't disparage those details. They, they could be useful. The other white horse, or mentioned earlier, of course, is the one in relation to the first of the seven seals, that he will break the first seal. I saw the lamb open the first of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures calling out in a voice of thunder, Come. And here, maybe the choreography matters, because... It almost seems like the four living creatures are in the know that this is a kind of practice thing. When, the, you know, why? What is it? Come? What? Do, are they saying something? Come to something, and they don't know what it is, or are they saying come to something, and they know what it is? You can make up your own mind about that. And then, <coughs> and I looked, and wow there was a white horse. And again, this white horse is also without the article, so it is something that has yet to be defined. And the one sitting on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he set out, conquering, dead set on winning the war. So I have accented things that I propose could be I'm not saying they are, but they could be contrasts rather than similarities. So I have accented here. I have said, sorry, I have said here, the one sitting on it. And I have said by upright means, he makes decisions and wages war. And then I have done the same here, the one sitting on it. But the it here, I'm proposing as a contrast to the other one. There are two white horses. They're not the same. And they do not have the same theological valence. That's just by way of suggestion. And this one is a conqueror. So he set out conquering dead set on winning the war. That's my translation. There is a very, very strong phrase there for intentionality, for purpose. I am going to win this war. I'm going to prevail, as it were. So <clears throat> here, looking at the details now with help from some of the pictures. So here, the, the two riders, they have white horses, yes. That's similar. But the rider here in Revelation 19, he has a sword coming out of his mouth, a two-edged sword and the rider on this horse he has a bow uh, so they do not fight with the same weapon that is a difference that is a contrast is it a trivial contrast or is it a contrast that has uh, that has meaning that that uh, is a signifier of a significant difference that is our question here and then as you read in revelation 19 Again, we read that the uh, so there is a company, the white horse in Revelation 19, and this is the rider. He has followers, and they also ride on white horses. The armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, followed him on white horses. But the horses in Revelation 6, the seven seals, They also have company. There is a a, a sequence of horses there, right? I looked. So here is the fourth horse. This is the fourth seal. I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was death, and Hades followed with him. So the white horses that follow the rider on the white horse in 19 they are all good good thing they are good there is no uh, you don't need to equivocate there but you get a little suspicious when you look at that other company the four horses in revelation 6 and especially the last one you know what is his company in contrast to those who f- oi sorry yeah uh, yes. so here yes So you see, but those terms, those terms I am saying they matter. What followed him, what followed with him here. Those are are comparisons. So here, and here there is a plural. They were given authority to kill with the sword, famine, and pestilence. But sword, famine, and pestilence, and now the wild animals of the earth... They are the features attaching to the second horse, the third horse, and the now the fourth one. the f- second horse kills with a sword. he had a big sword, and he was killing and the third one he had a scale, and there is famine because the prices go up and there is supply and demand and there is you know it works in uh, uh, negatively and here then we have the wild animals of the earth. (coughs) I need to digress just one second here on this one. So there is a science writer in America by the name of David Quammen. Has any of you read any book by David Quammen? Uh, You really... (laughs) I wish Americans would take more advantage of (coughs) the blessings of America such as David Quammen. David Quammen is a science writer who lives in in, in um, Montana. And he wrote a book uh, in 2012 on, the, on viral pandemics or viral infections that human beings have in common with animals. Those types of infections are called zoonotic infections. And HIV is a zoonotic disease. It came from from uh, primates in Africa and spilled over... Into humans and became one of the most challenging uh, infectious diseases in my career time. It came, started just after we were out of medical school. So David Quammen describes how these viral zoonoses have come more, more often, you know, more how they have become more frequent and more devastating. And COVID-19 is the latest of them. And his book, Spillover was published in 2012 and describes these things very competently. And he actually is seen as though he predicts the pandemic that we have just been through and still are not completely done with. Because that is a viral zoonosis, a, a disease we have in common with animals. And guess what he does? As a kind of epigraph, the text, he has a text at the very beginning of the book, Revelation 6, 8. That's the text he uses as a thematic text. Uh, the pay, and he has a chapter title with that text, The Pale Horse. <coughs> so, they were given authority to kill with the sword, famine and pestilence and by the wild animals of the earth. And David Quammen doesn't think that the wild animals of the earth that they are tigers and, and, uh, and lions and, and cougars or whatever you have here. He thinks the wild animals of the earth are the v- wild animals who have viral infections that are spilling over into human population. And by that criterion, we are getting killed by the wild animals of the earth because of that ecological relation. You see the point? I needed to digress there because it is so much on my mind. <coughs> anyway... So here, the rider on the white horse is in good company. They are following him, all of them, on white horses. But the four horsemen here, they are in a sort of questionable company. And the fourth one discloses himself or itself as thoroughly a demonic reality because he is uh, death is there and, and uh, Hades followed him. And can you see how... The artist here, this is the Deuce apocalypse, how that artist perceives the demonic character of that fourth horse. So it's quite well done. And here, <coughs> this is the Beatus apocalypse. And that one is more than a thousand years old. The Beatus uh, apocalypse started in Spain maybe a thousand years ago. And you see here that they all seem to be a, a group that you cannot is there one good horse, the white horse, it should be good. well, it isn't in those these representations they are all have the same significance. The first horse here with the bow, and then the second with the sword, and then the third one with the scales, and the fourth one with a huge demonic figure. It is now writ large that these four horses do not represent a benign reality. And I am fully aware and respectful of the fact that we have tended to sequester the first horse, the white horse, and make that horse a good one. And the challenges to a coherent interpretation, if you do that, are formidable. But that is a interpretation that is out there and we are not the only ones who have it, who hold it. So here again, the riders and the company they keep, how did Albrecht Dürer perceive it? He perceived them to be the same. They are a group, the bow, the sword, the scales and here he really does a good job, doesn't he, of the fourth horse and the pale, emaciated horse there the progression, as it were. And here you have the Beatus Apocalypse, same thing, and the demonic reality here. So my observation or suggestion is like this, (coughs) that the white horse in the first seal cannot be separated from the company it keeps. That is exegetically quite unsatisfactory, but it is in the reading tradition It is done. Here is another one. The bow. The bow is a weapon of conquest. That's a contrast. The bow and the sword are different weapons. We see that, that these two weapons are not the same. We can say, is it trivial, you know? But it is a difference. And the bow in Ezekiel 39 is a weapon of conquest. Contrasting with the sword. The sword is Revelation's favorite weapon. It's the weapon of witness. And the word witness is a very major word in Revelation that the good side in Revelation fights with a weapon of witness. But the other side fights with a weapon of conquest. Conquest on that bad side, witness on the good side, those are telling contrasts. The first seal stresses determination to win the war. He went out, sort of hell-bent on winning. And that's a contrast to the revealer who is breaking the seals, who has won the war. The war is, in some ways, already, the outcome is already settled. The other side, then, would be contesting the outcome, would be contesting that there is already a victor, and maybe trying to... Uh, undo that. And then, and <clears throat> this is a big one, but we can't do it in detail. There is a bit in very clearly, and this is acknowledged by Adventist interpreters too, that there is a parallel in the seal sequence, for at least the first five seals, actually, all of them. Parallel between revelation and the synoptic apocalypse in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Let's just do, do, do this one, and I am going to sit down, because they were sitting down at the Mount of Olives, and uh, just before the end, and the disciples come to Jesus, and they ask him, tell us, What is the sign of your coming and the end of the world? You remember that? They come to him and they ask him, What is the sign of your coming and the end of the world? And what does he answer? Does he say there will be war? He does. Does he say there will be famine? Yes. Does he say there will be death? They will kill you? Yes. And then what else does he say? The first thing he says. What is the first thing he says in the Synoptic Apocalypse? He says, beware of the rider on the white horse. Someone is trying to steal my horse. Beware that no one leads you astray. That's what he says first. And then he says later, many will come in my name and say, I am he, and I am he. What is So if you make the synoptic apocalypse a parallel to the seals in Revelation, the first thing that comes to mind is deception, not war, not famine. And the thing that dominates the synoptic apocalypse Apocalypse is the notion of someone coming pretending to be someone else than who he is. Revelation does that explicitly, and Adventists have also figured that one out in Revelation 13. But if you think that there is a parallel to the synoptic apocalypse, that my friends in the Seventh-day Adventist uh, interpretive community also thinks... But they leave out the first horse. They save war and famine and and death. But the notion of deception was left out because (coughs) we think that the rider on the white horse there is a good one. Just a few observations by other scholars on this topic. (coughs) Here is one from South Africa. And I have talked to a person who knows South Africa very well here. (coughs) <coughs> this is Peter de Villiers. <coughs> the writer in Revelation 6 thus is one of the most important enemies in the book. It tells of a time in which false prophets will be so powerful that they will mislead the world and even the church. And then there is another one. This is someone <coughs> who I have met in scholarly meetings, and I have actually written a recommendation on the back of one of his books. <coughs> But the similarities are to be expected. For the first horseman is a demonic parody of Christ, evil masquerading as good. Don't embrace this interpretation just like that. You know, maybe I am the rider on the white horse, riding on a stolen horse, you know, in in some ways. (coughs) I'm just just, uh, uh, saying that, uh, you know, uh, (coughs) jokingly. But... Don't change your mind about these conventional interpretations, but this interpretation is out there. It is a significant interpretation, and in some ways significantly more coherent, in my view at least, than the traditional interpretation that sequesters out the the first horse. So here, this was in New York Times, this is our time. And this was a cartoon in New York Times a couple of years ago, and they are making use of the of the image in Revelation 6, the four horsemen of Revelation. There is something wrong with that one. I mean the way they label them, because the second horse in Revelation is war, the third one is famine. Here they made Famine and pestilence into two horses to make it four, doesn't that's not uh, faithful to the symbolism, but they need another horse. <laughs> you need five horses to make to make it represent the way evil works. To make it to include the element of misrepresentation, the element of deception. Pe- Beware that no one leads you astray. That's the synoptic apocalypse. So they do that one, <coughs> but they don't know. What we have done now is, of course, to change the meaning of these horses. And the misinformation horse is one of the four horsemen by this criterion, by this adjustment. You get the point here. And my comment no. John did not leave out the most telling feature of the opposing side, its preference for the white horse. So in, <coughs> in Revelation 13, of course, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth are not just uh, opposing beasts to the good side. They are imitations. They're images of imitation, The beast that had a mortal wound has a wound that imitates the wound of Christ, the lamb that was killed with violence. And the beast from the earth is a beast that looks like a lamb. So in Revelation 13, we already have this, what I am proposing to say, is going on in in chapter 19. And he has a name that no one knows but him. That is an amazing verse, that the rider on the white horse is an unknown character. No one knows him. What is he like? And what does it mean to the name? And we are attuned to that way of thinking. To know the name is to know what the person is like. What is most characteristic about that person It's like Moses at the burning bush and God tells him to do something. And Moses says, who shall I say sent me? What is his name? That's very telling. And then there is Jacob. That's earlier, by the way. That's in Genesis. Jacob's fighting with the angel. And he wants to know the name. Tell me your name. I will not let you go unless you bless me and he wants to know the name. Why do you tell ask me about my name? It is a wonderful name. That's what the angel there answers. You cannot (laughs) exaggerate the importance of the notion of the name in Hebrew thought and in the Hebrew Bible in general. And there was a reason why in ancient Israel they hesitated to, to say it. You know, they would always circumscribe it. Yes. But here it has content. To know the name is to know what the person is like. But no one knows this person's name. And why is that? Well, <clears throat> there could be many reasons. Transcendence, God, and humans there is a huge difference. There would be an innate sort of gap there. It would be hard to know, even by by that criterion. But let's just make it very simple to make the the sort of most basic observation we can make about this subject in the book itself. In chapter 12, we have the dragon who was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is the Slanderer, ho diabolos, and the antagonist, ho satanas. He is the opponent in the cosmic conflict, and what is his specialty? To slander the name. To slander the name, to misrepresent the name. The word diabolos is a word that is derived from throwing. Ballo is the word for throwing. And dia, dia ballo, that's throwing something through someone. So another term for that that other people have used, and I think I have used it too in my work, is the mudslinger. The other side is slinging mud, he's throwing mud, he is destroying another person's reputation. And that does damage to the name, and our perception of the name. What to do? The beast from the earth, the beast from the sea, uh, having ten horns and seven heads, and on its heads were slanderous names. The business of the beast from the earth is to slander someone. That is its main characteristics. It has a name too, that is the name also in the sense of characteristics. And it opened its mouth to slander God, to throw mad at God, slandering his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. So, one of the reasons and a prominent reason why we don't know the name, <coughs> to know it is to know what the person is like. Here we don't know. Why don't we? Well, one reason. The main reason, as this book tells it, is that the name was slandered. There is coherence to that. There has been damage done to God's name and reputation. There is a big sort of misperception of God out there. And the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, he has a name that no one knows. He has a name that he would like us to know. He is fighting for his name, as we might see in a minute. So, reading on, and he is dressed in clothing dipped in blood, and his name is called the Revealer of God. And I have translated that term a certain way myself here in this illustration from Seven 800 years ago, his name is Verbum Dei. That is Latin for the Word of God. And the Greek term is the same as you have in the beginning of the Gospel of, of John. Ho Logos to Theo, the Word of God. But I have translated it the Revealer of God because the notion of a word as revelation is biblical through and through. So his name is called the Revealer of God, and I want to translate John 1-1 the same way, the Gospel. But <coughs> uh, that's another another story. So here, here he is, the rider on the white horse, and his robe is bloody, it's dipped in blood, and here is this, this, the sword, and now <coughs> we need to find out one more last and crucial thing about this writer, before we conclude. So, <coughs> again, these are, uh, uh, yeah, so, so uh, um, just repeating here. <coughs> What's the, the known the name is to know the characteristics. What is the most characteristic of this person? And Revelation tells us what is most characteristic about him. What defines him? What defines him is his clothing. He has a robe that is dipped in blood. And what also defines him is his function. Uh, His character, robe dipped in blood, function, he is the revealer of God. Those are elements here uh, uh, characterizing him. When the book says he has a name that no one knows, and the next thing it does is to say what that name is, then we should say that we are approaching the possibility that we will actually know the name. For that term, (coughs) a robe dipped in blood, there are two candidate texts in the Old Testament. There is no exact verbal parallel. It is not not a sort of uh, one-to-one relationship. But for That notion of someone who has a robe dipped in blood, one thing that, one story that comes to mind is the story of Joseph. And let's read it. And here is an illustration, a Rembrandt like illustration, where the brothers come with the robe that is dipped in blood. And there is Jacob grieving over his son, who he thinks has been killed. And here is another picture of the same. They are bringing the robe, and the father is aghast, just outraged, horrified. Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They had the long robe with sleeves taken to their father, and they said, This is what we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. This is a candidate text for the robe dipped in blood in Revelation 19 and the consequence if we accept this one if the robe dipped in blood is an allusion to Joseph's robe the blood on the rider's robe is his own blood. And I could leave it at that and I was tempted to just leave it at that in my commentary but (coughs) <coughs> one must not make it too easy for oneself. One must, not, one must make apparent or visible to others, um, to uh, readers, if there are other options. You cannot say, well, that was the one thing and finished. So there is another option and it is quite challenging. So here <coughs> we read again in Revelation, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations strike the nations would be better. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will shepherd them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So what are we going to do with that? And here is Revelation's image, the rider on the white horse with the robe and the sword, and here treading the winepress and he is doing this, he or he alone will tread the winepress. So what does (coughs) the Old Testament give us here on this one? Because we are now uh, locked in by our own method that we are obligated. We have said we are going to consult the Old Testament, and so we will. And here (coughs) is the Old Testament, the Best candidate text in the Old Testament. It is from the book of Isaiah, from chapter 63, the third part of Isaiah. That's how scholars see it. Who is this that comes from Edom? From Bozrah, in garments stained crimson, red robe. Who is this so splendidly robed, marching in his great might? It is I announcing vindication, mighty to save. Why are your robes red and your garments like theirs who tread the winepress? Here is the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their juice splattered on my garments and stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year for my redeeming work had come. This is Isaiah 63, again, still. So, then summarizing, here still reading on in Isaiah. I have trodden the winepress alone. I'm looking for the aloneness of the ones who does it, because that is such a prominent feature in this text that he had to do it alone. And how does that uh, play out in the context of the New Testament? I looked, but there was no helper. I stared, but there was no one to sustain me. So my own arm brought me victory, and my wrath sustained me. I trampled down peoples in my anger and crushed them in my wrath and poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So what do we do with this? What does it... Does this text suggest that the blood on the robe is someone else's blood? That is the issue. If the blood on the rider of the white horse... If that is influenced by Genesis and Joseph, then it is the blood of the Jesus, his own blood. But here you might think it wasn't. You might think that he prevails in a mode of violence and defeats the other side violently. That is why we need to do this, and, and we need to do it uh, in humility and circumspect. <laughs> So where will I go to start this from a New Testament perspective? And this has been on my mind many times before uh, without influences that of which I am aware, but there is a strangeness to this aloneness of the figure. And if you look in the Gospel story and look at Jesus, you will see that the disciples and Jesus sometimes have a disagreement. When Jesus is arrested, peop- or when they, that happened, one of his disciples wants to bring a sword along. And Jesus says, don't bring the sword. You know, And he says, whoever takes to the sword will fall by the sword. He's not fond of the sword. He's not fond of a violent, uh, a violent approach. They are visiting Samaria, and the Samaritans are unfriendly to Jesus. And the disciples they say, well, let's get some action here. Let's have fire fall down from heaven. And again, Jesus says, man, we're not doing this with violence. That we are, we are eschewing violence. This, this is not part of my method. And, you know, here he gets arrested. And there is no. He even lets it happen to John the Baptist. John the Baptist asks, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we expect someone else? And, and then. You know, before you know it, there is John the Baptist head on a platter. You know, Jesus didn't save him. It's strange, isn't it? So here is my proposal. And he said to, here is Jesus in Gethsemane. He said to them, I'm deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. So here it is obvious that Jesus expects to die. And he is asking for company as he As death draws closer, he wants to have someone 's hand to hold, he wants sustenance, and going a little farther, he threw himself to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, "Abba, Father, for you, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not as I want, but as you what what you want <coughs> he came and and then the next thing we 're reading on. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. It's just like after uh, for us now, we are fighting that too, because we've had a wonderful potluck. (coughs) And he did not know what to say to him. And he came a third time and said to them, "Are you still sleeping and taking your rest?" And then all of them deserted him and fled. What's the prominent feature in the temptation story in Jesus in the in the uh, or Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane in the trial story? He's all alone. He's all alone. There's nobody there, and he looked to see because he was. He had asked Peter, John, and James to go with him, going, they would be with him. Because when you, when you are in a hard place, you may not want the crowd to be there. You want the special people to be there. We have a wonderful artist in Norway, Edvard Munch. We think he is a world-class artist, and he has a painting called The Sick Room. In the sick room. And what is characteristic of that painting is that there is a sick person there. but And all the people, the other people in the room, all of them grieving, are grieving alone. There is a kind of loneliness to grief itself. It's hard to connect. How do you do this? Anyway... Here, when Jesus is in his hour of trial, he is wishing to have company. And the fact that he doesn't have that is very prominent. Just as in Isaiah, that the warrior, the divine warrior in Isaiah 63, the most conspicuous feature of that person's fight is that he has to do it alone. If... Isaiah is to be read as though God's way is violence. He wouldn't have to do it alone. Gospel, the disciples, they want to do it with violence. They want to intervene violently. They want fire to come down from heaven. There is, you know, so the aloneness that is so prominent in Isaiah, somehow needs to be preserved for us. And because it is, there is a kind of incongruity incongru- there that is not uh, <coughs> laid to rest uh, easily. So here, this is a painting, and here he is doing this thing alone, and sure enough, they are sleeping. Now, I think this... Quotation I will read from the book Desire of Ages is in the Sabbath school lesson for this week. I didn't look it up again because it had it has been in my mind many times, but I seem to think that I saw it because I was glancing at these lessons. It is, I think, in the quarterly this this quarter. So here is a, a, a quotation from uh, this, uh, the chapter Gethsemane from Ellen G. White. I don't usually use L.N.G. White quotations when I uh, pre- uh, share on Revelation uh, because I think one should let the text of the Bible play out first and there is a tendency to lock things in once one has done that. Here is Jesus in Gethsemane having made the decision he fell dying to the ground from which he had partially risen. Where now his disciples? Where now? Where now were his disciples, to place their hands tenderly beneath the head of their fainting master, and bathe that brow uh, marked, uh, marred, endeared more, more than the sons of men. The saviour trod the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with him. This is Ellen G. White's perception that she can legitimately use Isaiah 63 for the struggle of Jesus in Gethsemane. There is a corollary to the aloneness of God and the aloneness of Jesus in the New Testament, not in the sense of an eschatological battle where he had to fight something and nobody else wanted to do it. It is here, in that middle of the story, that he trod the winepress alone and of the people there was none with him. I wish wish to salvage for our reading of Revelation that aloneness feature of Isaiah 63. that language of someone treading the winepress is definitely echoing in Revelation, but not necessarily with the image that that we take or the message we would say is there at face value. So here is my comment. If the robe dipped in blood is an allusion to the divine warrior in Isaiah, With focus on his aloneness, the sense of being abandoned, and the cost to himself, the blood on the rider's robe is still his own. The other side is defeated, and use of violence language for defeating someone is very much, there is plenty of that in the Old Testament, But there is not much evidence in the New Testament for divine use of violence. That simply isn't isn't there. It certainly isn't there in the life that was revealed, God revealed in Christ in the earthly life. So this is how I wish to solve that. The lamb killed with violence... That is the defining revelation in the book in chapter 5 in the heavenly council. The lamb that was killed with violence that is able to take the book and so on. And the rider whose robe is, is soaked in blood is the same person. Both images show the name revealed. Not as one that is victim of violence, and the other, a perpetrator of violence? You have to have both, my reading colleagues will say. He's a victim of violence, we accept that. He's also a perpetrator of violence, you have to accept that. I don't accept that. I think there is another way of reading this. I do not think that is necessary. And I have made this illustration myself, two sides on the same coin. Now look at it and see what you see. What are you seeing? I took the images from these uh, (coughs) apocalypses, these ancient apocalypses. One image is the is the lamb killed with violence in Revelation 5, and the other one is the rider on the white horse. I'm saying there are two sides of the same coin. I'm saying that the two sides of the coin tell the same story, that they show God winning the war without the use of violence. (coughs) I want to just do one more on this, because (coughs) most scholars do not think that The author of Revelation has anything to do with the author of the Gospel of John, the beloved disciple. We don't know that the author of the Gospel of John was a John. We only know that he was the beloved disciple. We know that the author of the book of Revelation is a John. I, John. But we don't know if he is also the beloved disciple. Well, I think he is. And I have argued that, and most scholars think that is a a mistake. But be that as it may, here is (coughs) from the Gospel of John. This is the Gethsemane scene in the Gospel of John. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. And then, a few verses further down, Now is the critical moment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be expelled or exposed. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What will Jesus do? And this is Gethsemane. This is the death of Jesus. This is the way to the cross. What will he do? He will defeat the ruler of this world. That's what he will do. And how will he defeat him? He's going to kill him, right? He is not going to kill him. He is going to be killed. That's how he will defeat him. He will defeat him as a victim of violence, not as a perpetrator of violence. This is basic. This is basic stuff. So here, just to... (coughs) (coughs) illustrate <coughs> this painting here is by a Norwegian painter by the name of Henrik Sorensen. I think it, it does the Gethsemane scene in an amazing way. And there are some details here that you probably can't see unless I make them uh, uh, make you aware of it. Jesus is in deep distress here. And this angel that comes and helps him here is found in the Gospels, too. He, pro- he figures very prominently in Ellen White's retelling of that story. But do you see these things here? See that one? See that one? See that there are hands. You see those hands reaching up from the earth? Can you see that? You see it? They are like claws. Something, a force, is clawing at him. You know, this is a serious battle. And Jesus is there you know fighting this battle and and we know that he wins it here is the claw and here is the other one you see it may be better now i said last night that there is a fork in the road when one reads the book of revelation i said it under the headline god is not the only one who is at work in this world and i said that Many interpreters tend to under project that to make it as though God is doing most of the things there, and reading it as though things that are done by the other side in Revelation, the trumpets, the bowls, that they are done by God. But so the message of Revelation, as many readers read it, and will be a message of divine retribution. I contend that the message is not that, that it is a message of revelation, revealing to us God and his name and what kind of person he is, and also revelation as expose, showing up the other side for the way the other side has misrepresented God. And that takes care of it. (laughs) So let's summarize here. He has a name that no one knows but him. No one knows the name because it was slandered. Will the name be known? It will, because he will reveal it. The blood into which his robe is dipped is his own blood. I contend for that. What now is the name as description of of disposition of character if someone has a name that is defined by a robe dipped in blood? He did not hang on to his life he 's a self giving person he 's a self giving person, and the other side who slandered him did not think he was. He thought he represented God as God, you know, God is an egotist or something you know so i 'm using very poor language for this because it is hard to describe and do justice to it. and what now is his name? If you take it as a description of task, he is the revealer of the kind of person God is, and his robe is dipped in blood. (coughs) So those are images that help us. (coughs) We will close on a couple other verses here. (coughs) Revelation's fondness for names. To everyone who prevails in the war, I will give some of the hidden manna. to, uh, uh, And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Here's another name no one knows. The name that the one who receives that stone gets, similar to 1912. And I will write on him, this is the message to Philadelphia, and I will write on him and on her, the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that is coming down from heaven from my God, and my name, the new one. And the new name is in some ways the renewed name, the name reclaimed and taken back. It is not entirely something not known before. And here... It's (coughs) uh, an illustration by uh, Albrecht Dürer of the sealing in Revelation. I will magnify it here. And you can see here that the angel seals the believers by writing on their foreheads uh, the name. That's what he does, he writes the name on their foreheads. (coughs) So here, and I think we are done. The name revealed, inscribed, and reflected. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And Revelation 22, 4, one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So, My summary here, name is revealed, the rider on the white horse. (laughs) Let's be sure we don't get that one wrong. The name is inscribed, Revelation 14, 1, and the name is also reflected by those who have the name on their foreheads. They are also in some ways uh, now uh, shaped by the name. And here is uh, those Here are those scenes in the Trinity Apocalypse. Uh, Here, the lamb standing on Mount Zion. I will magnify it up to this way. And then I will read my last slide. We get to know the name. It is the writer's mission to reveal it. The robe dipped in blood and the lamb killed with violence are complementary images defining the name. There is an irreducible subjectivity in the revelation and transmission of the name. It is only fully known at the level of experience. You get a name that no one knows but you. Purely subjective. We didn't know. It's in, it's in a sort of private sphere. It's communicate, And he has a name that no one knows but him. But he reveals it. So there is a kind of objectivity, but in some ways it is irreducibly subjective because of that factor. To convey knowledge of the name, this is my last point, to convey knowledge of the name is in this book more important than knowledge of history. Time. So which one is at the center, name or time? Thank you very much for being here for inviting me and just very grateful to do this. I like the message of this book and though it is an effort to share it, I'm very happy to share it. Thank you very much.
1: Do you you. have any questions?
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: I've asked him if he would take questions. He said he would, if some of you have some. also want to remind you, if you'd like to have a copy of the slides, sign that sheet in the office. It's right on the counter there. If you would like a copy of his book, uh, the Revelation Commentary, you can write your name down there, too. We're going we're gonna to have those books here at the church. If you'd like to have one, we'll make sure you have one. And there will be a copy in the library, probably a couple of copies in the library. Okay. So uh, if you would like to ask a question, I'll bring the mic around so that you, if you raise your hand and have a question, he can answer it. Um, I'll, I'll start out with one question. Uh, the, the idea of openness in the book of Revelation, and there's one passage I'm thinking of that that maybe you could comment on, and that's the seven thunders.
0: Yeah. What do you you think? Yeah, (laughs) sure. That's amazing. (coughs) Isn't it intriguing? You know, we are in Revelation chapter 10, and there is, you know, a big disclosure. There is an open book, and then after he has said this, the seven thunders sound. And after they had sounded, he was starting to write. And he gets the message, don't write, seal it, hide it. So there is a limit to openness. Okay. There is some knowledge we are spared. It looks like that. John knows something he didn't write. <laughs> it's strange. It's really strange. The, but there is a kind of immediacy to that communication between God and John, a kind of intimacy to it. So yes, we are standing and looking over his shoulder to see what he sees and what is told. And then he sees something that we don't see. We don't get to know it. He knows it, but we don't. He, he, he apparently knows it, and wanted to write it. There is instruction in revelation to write. It begins right away. Get this book, write it. mail it out, send it. And at the very end of the book, write it. These words are trustworthy and true. So they're commissioned to write this. It's prominent. Okay. And then that exception it's strange. Okay. It's don't write. <laughs> mm.
1: It's amazing. <laughs> Anybody else? Hand up? Mike.
2: Yeah, a couple of things I'm curious about. <clears throat> you referenced the fact that violence in the New Testament is a whole different breed than how it's treated in the Old Testament. Uh, we have the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, and yet every nation has their military to protect their nation. And the Jewish nation went out in the spring campaigns and did battle with the Ammonites and everyone else. Um, And sometimes it gives the impression that God is sending them out to kill every man, woman, and child. Um, We have stand-your-ground laws in many states in our country. Uh, We have self-defense laws if somebody breaks into our home um, and there is an intent to harm or to kill, then a person presumably has their right, the right to protect themselves against that. So the whole, the whole issue of, of violence is pretty clear. And Jesus was a, 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 the ultimate pacifist. He gave his life. And paradoxically, in his lack of violence and his lack of being a powerful governmental ruler, he saved humanity. In a very str- strange, unexpected way, but where does that leave us with respect to some of those issues?
0: That's <coughs> that's a very uh, a very challenging question. It's probably more challenging to answer it in, in the context of, of of this country, where you have you have a culture of of self-defense and also a culture of crime that is quite, quite uh, uh, exceptional actually. Uh, then so. So let me just say that. That is a theological question. Yeah, <coughs> yes. Yeah, so there is a you. The theological part of it is that. The theological part of it is that Jesus dies as a victim of violence. He's a lamb killed with violence. He accepts that, and actually, that willingness to die and be a victim of violence works to defeat the other side, because the other side has misrepresented God and said things about God, such as God is not a self-giving person. You know, and so when that is, so he has shown up. He is actually defeated by his own sort of strategy. The Apostle Paul writes in, I think it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that we preach a wisdom that is unusual wisdom. None of the rulers of this world understood it. If they had understood it, they would not have killed the Lord of glory. There was a kind of strategy on the part of the opposing side that overestimated. It's like a little bit like Vladimir Putin. If he had read the landscape better, he would not have attacked Ukraine. You know, there is a kind of misreading of what this would lead to. And the, Paul says that the rulers of this world misread. They had confidence in a strategy that actually backfired. So the theology of it is, yes, he is a victim of violence. he's is a self-giving person. He told them not to bring any swords. He would not do self-defense. And the book of Revelation inscribes the same ethos on the believer. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. That is you know, for the follower of Jesus. Now, what? how does this translate into public policy, self-defense, guns? I have opinions about that because I have opinions about just about anything. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> but, but I think this country has a gun problem and I wish one would do something about it that would make it safer to be here. Because... Uh, because it is not feels as safe as, as you know many other countries. Many years ago, the New England Journal of Medicine had an artic- article. This is in the 80s. A comparison between Seattle and Vancouver, Canada, and the U.S. on compa- uh, cities with a comparable dim- demographic, and gun deaths, da- gun related deaths. And let me just say, Seattle did not win that one. That comparison did not uh, go in favor of Seattle. But I think we should leave that question out. I think we did the theology quite clearly, I hope so.
3: This is kind of mixing maybe two different things. Uh, from the spirit of prophecy to the Bible but in one of Mrs. White's commentaries uh, she mentions the Waldensians being caught in a cave or a, a group similar to them if it was not them in Italy and there was only one way in and the Romans let themselves down on a rope and none of the men did anything and 600 people were killed the children the women everything and she said if just one man would have stepped forward he could have saved the whole world and i was just wondering how you know i read that and i thought when do we step forward and when do we not
0: just to help me understand that. So she is suggesting or hinting that if they had practiced self-defense, it would have worked. Well, she she just said they had
3: weapons, but nobody stepped forward because only one person could come down that rope at a time. And she just made the comment, if one man would have stepped forward to defend them, it would have saved all 600. And I've always kind of... St- pondered over that, that story because s- sometimes sometimes in our manhood we want to step forward and then we say no just keep your mouth shut or stay where you are And so I just was wondering if you had a thought and I should I should have given you a direct quote and I did not so.
0: uh, I <clears throat> don't think I know how to answer that. I, 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 you know, th- but the, the paradigm, the notion that a faith group, a faith minority is threatened and will be tempted to defend itself violently, I do find that to be a little hard to, to think that it would work in relation to what we just said about Revelation. If, if anyone is to go in <coughs> into captivity, into captivity will go but you know who knows you know there are communal and situational specifics the <coughs> one of the problems about the second century and the holocaust that the jews are often blamed for not defending themselves not fighting back you know that they should have you know stood up against it probably wouldn't have worked but it is one of the things that is said in the book of the maccabees first and second maccabees the, Maccabee, uh, the Jews, at first, uh, the followers of, of uh, Mattathias and Judas Maccabeus at first, they <coughs> practiced pacifism on Sabbath. They did not fight on the Sabbath, and the uh, Seleucids, Antiochus Epiphanes, and those people, they of course attacked them savagely on Sabbath because they wouldn't fight back and then they Judas Maccabeus, or his father's son, they said, well, if we go on like this, this we're done for, you know. Similar, maybe, to the Wallen seas. So they started fighting back, and they fought savagely. And they killed, you know, the book of Maccabees, are very bloody. 30,000 they killed. 20,000, 24,000. The blood was all over the place. And Judas Maccabeus became like a, role model for for the Messiah. That's what Jewish messianism came to center on, that there would be a figure like Judas Maccabeus who would be a militant deliverer for Israel. So Maccabean militarism influenced Jewish messianism. I have written an article about that in the Andrews University Seminary Study, so you could say, well, if you do that, you set a precedent. And the end you will have is the Constantinian state. You will have a faith-based society that is militant, that uses the instruments of, you know. I think you have raised a very interesting question. I'm very intrigued by it, and I wish I could be here more to, to um, hear what, see it and discuss it more. Uh, In
3: the previous session, you talked about the half hour, that it was uh, mentioned about the half hour silence in heaven. Yeah. In other seminars, that was related to uh, the day year prophecy, and they tied that into when Jesus comes back, there's silence in heaven because everybody, or all the angels and Jesus are down around the earth claiming his, and that's what that half hour is. Is that how you see it, too? No. I didn't (laughs)
0: think so. Let me say why. So that is historicism gone haywire. You know, where every time period, every symbolic time period has to be broken down into a historical, actual time. You know, so half an hour is a certain period of time. I'm not sure exactly how much time... Uh-huh. A week, yes. And a week, that is how long the heaven empties and the second coming happens. So let's just do one flaw with that, other than the fact that it puts time in the center without interest in the name. You know. So the flaw of that, of course, is that it doesn't pay attention to the Old Testament. And we tried out an Old Testament text for that silence in heaven for half an hour. Anyway, the character of the silence is the response to the revelation that has taken place. The revelation of the lamb that was killed with violence in Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 15. There is that figure, my servant who shall be high and lifted up and Kings shall be surprised, and they shall close their mouth. For that they have what they have not seen, they shall see, and what they have not heard, they shall see. I have no idea why we would descend in Adventist interpretations to such a trivializing interpretation as that. It really does. Maybe it isn't. I, I just think that that alternative is quite, quite. Uh, definitively defeated by I mean the time centeredness there that it's a week and so on it wants to tell us about historical events and Revelation wants to tell us about the person and the revelation of that person and the impact it has on the world and the silence that follows a disclosure that just made everyone the, they didn't know what to say but uh, thank you for that question. I, I think it's good to air it out, you know. And, and here I gave a pretty blunt answer. <laughs> I don't mean to be mean. I just think it isn't a good answer. Yeah. yeah.
4: Firstly, Doctor, I want to thank you for inviting us all to the deep end of the pool <laughs> on your presentations. <laughs> Getting back to your first point, uh, thinking about the, uh, the, the consequences of mystery, uh, I'm mindful of when Christ told his followers that he had many of the things to tell them, but they couldn't bear them now, thinking that that as things progressed, that they could expect more if they were interested in hearing it and And yet, there is a knowledge that the heavenly family never wanted us to have, which was the knowledge of good and evil. So maybe sometimes we need to let things alone and allow him to reveal himself at, at his rate.
0: Yeah. But I think your comment is similar to the thunders, the seven thunders, you know, that was revealed, and then they said, don't write it, you know, that that is knowledge not, that is not beneficial to have. And maybe <coughs> it isn't always good to know things. There is a risk to that. Uh, there is a, <coughs> a uh, German philosopher Uh, Karl Popper, who wrote a a, a couple of books uh, at the time when the totalitarian philosophies were dominating in Europe. His books are called uh, The Open Society and Its Enemies. And and he says that people who know the future, there are two pitfalls. He actually calls them historicists, but he doesn't mean historicism the way we practice it in the Adventist church. It's historicism in a kind of philosophical sense. But it's the same. If you are a historicist, you might know the future. And if you know the future, you may say that that future will happen no matter what I do. So it leaves you in a state of complacency. It's morally morally inert. It doesn't do anything, because history will happen that way anyway, no matter what I do. The other side of that is not complacency but dogmatism. If you know how things will happen, let's make it happen. Let's intervene, let's, you know... So, so he says that historicism that leads to those kinds of attitudes is actually morally uh, unacceptable. Because, you know, either you are complacent or you... So what you can know... And what he thinks is important to know is a certain set of values. You commit to a certain set of values and you commit to those values no matter what. You know.
4: Based upon your uh, earlier visual presentation of the two sides of the coin, it sounds like one extreme and the other are just different sides of the same coin of fatalism. That I can't really, then I shouldn't, that I can't, as opposed to just submitting to God saying, what would you have me do? And I'll deal with the minutiae that I can see and allow you to be in control of the big picture. Because only he can be.
0: When in in the, as a sort of vocational vision, because there is a vocational vision in Revelation too, it isn't complacency, it isn't dogmatism. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears it say, come. And let the thirsty... You know, let them come and take it without paying for it. You see, that is the vocational vision. The believing communities that are affected by the, by the message of the book of Revelation are not communities that do nothing. They are the bride in the story. And the spirit and the bride, they say, come.
5: realize you are here. Uh, yeah, During your presentation this afternoon I was reminded of uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Nachfolge or the Cost of Discipleship and I thought he certainly would uh, have to agree with you. I have to say that when Brother Needham here raised the question about the Valencians <coughs> I uh, was reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer again because um, I was shocked after I had read The Cost of Discipleship and I got a hold of his letters from prison and uh, became more interested in his fate, in his life, and how he had gone over to the resistance against Hitler and uh, the Holocaust, uh, I was shocked, I said this this could not be Dietrich Bonhoeffer because it clashes with what he later on advocated, the assassination of Hitler. Um, but I'm wondering in view of what uh, Brother Needham was saying about the Waldensians, whether there is not a difference in terms of resistance, or even when it comes to it, violence. Um, The Valdensians were attacked indirectly. They were attacked as Christians, as brothers and sisters of Jesus. if I am attacked and I am responsible for my family and their wealth welfare, I have an obligation um, to shelter, to shield them. And um, if there is a robbery and an armed robbery in my home, um, <clears throat> I may not, I don't know what I would do, but I may not hesitate to take up arms, to defend, because this is not a matter <clears throat> of uh, of uh, defending um, Christ and his cause. Um, It is just a crime being committed, and I am trying to interfere and stop that crime. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder whether that is not uh, the possible difference in the case of the Mm Waldensians, and as it applies maybe to us
0: today. So, just a comment on Bonhoeffer, who yeah. is an admir- admirable character, of course. So, and I have read The Cost of Discipleship and the letters of papers from prison. And I have a colleague at Loma Linda who is uh, doing a dissertation on, on Bonhoeffer. And he is very keen on pointing out that when Bonhoeffer decides to say that he will be part of an attempt to assassinate Hitler, he doesn't say that he is doing the right thing. He says, I don't know what the right thing is. But he thinks he should do it. And he doesn't think he should, he, he's not doing it to set an example. That's what you should do, too. He leaves ma- massive ambiguity around that decision. And yes, they tried and it didn't work. That, but, and just on the notion of defending oneself, I would agree with that. I will say one thing about your gun laws, the gun laws in America, I should say. That the notion that you can interpret these gun laws to say that you can have weapons of war and buy them in a store on the corner with no, you don't even, it's easier than to get a driver's license. You can buy these weapons with, you know, basically machine guns. And you say that is covered by the, f- the Second Amendment? I don't think so. I think that is a misinterpretation, and I think that is a mistake here. But I'm not saying that that means in our neighborhoods that if someone wants to rob your house, you might not—you might defend yourself. I might say that too. There is, a, you know, policy issues there too. But but it's—we ache for this country. I ache for America that has all these uh, gun shootings. And in Ubalde, in Texas, they had police and they had guns, and they still still didn't work, so.
1: We have uh, still need Delete hands.
0: that from the record, because I do not want my uh, comments here to be comments on, on contemporary political issues in America. <laughs> This was a revelation presentation. <laughs> you, uh,
1: you let us know when you've had enough. I sh- I'll take the mic to the hands until you say that's enough. Okay? Yeah, one,
0: one last one. Okay.
4: Okay, this is a little easier. Uh, the white stone that people are given, it, it, was that a, like a stone of freedom in, in Roman culture that they were given? And John was using that same imagery. You know, we, we'll be given a white stone. What, what, what was the white stone I, I,
0: I think so. I think that is the association, that it has a connotation of victory and, and that there is a, a kind of image behind it. The name written on it may be the more important part, but it, it, it's, it, there is a sort of cuteness to it. But I think, I think what you suggest to be this, um, the symbolic symbol. meaning of that is, is, is valid. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, well, I, okay let's, uh, that's,
1: uh, I, I'll take you a couple more. <laughs> one more, one more. This is it. <laughs> Ladies last.
0: Thank you.
5: I appreciate um, your emphasis on the slain lamb as being the center, really, of revelation. There's a part of me in my humanness that when I read this, I want to say, don't hurt the lamb. The lamb hasn't done anything. And then I realized the only reason he can open the seal is because he's slain, right? If he was just the lamb, it seems like there would be a difference. It has to be a slain lamb. And that's the gospel, right?
0: Yes. I would say yes to what you're saying, but I just hesitate a little with the term the gospel. It is the gospel but it is the gospel told and defined in a certain setting. The setting is cosmic conflict. There is a misrepresentation of God there. And how do you fix that? How do you fix that God has been misrepresented? What's the remedy for misrepresentation? The remedy for that is revelation, that God's the true character of God will be revealed and will then defeat the misrepresentation. So, the gospel in the context of Revelation is that revelation that defeats the misrepresentation of God. It isn't simply that Jesus died for your sins, it is that Jesus dies as a victim of violence to defeat the misrepresentation. He dies in some ways for God not just for us, in a sense, because that's what it takes to reveal the kind of person God is. So, the, the term gospel works, but it needs to be kind of circumscribed, contextualized in that context. And for that reason, it is important to say not that he was slaughtered, in my view, but that he was killed with violence. That is. That specifies what happens there more than just the, the notion of slaughter, and the type of story revelation tells of how redemption pays, pays out is not well taken care of in traditional Protestant theology, because Protestant theology is more interested in individual salvation and not in the bigger picture of how what is god like you know and, and and many reading, many reading traditions of the book of Revelation use the book of Revelation to misrepresent God, such as the notion that they will suffer and burn forever and ever. That's in Revelation. The way you read that is quite important, how you do that to make Revelation give the message about God. So I agree with everything you say and then I add a couple of nuancing uh, comments to it.
1: These uh, two folk have come a long way to be with us this weekend. They both have busy schedules, as you can imagine, uh, and they've come up here to Squim, first time, I believe, on the Olympic Peninsula, for you. Uh, I just want to ask you to give them one more token of your appreciation (laughs) for them being here. Thank you so much for your work and for your diligence in contributing to scholarship that might change some thinking. Uh, good stuff. Thank you. And would you bless us sure. by praying for us one last time
0: before we close? Yeah. <coughs> Dear God <coughs> and Father in heaven, we thank you that <coughs> you have revealed yourself to us, that Jesus is